Genesis chapter 45 is where we are going to be. Genesis 45, if you're looking on your phone, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. So that's probably going to be helpful. Uh, you have all the version options, I'm sure, as you look online and things like that. So Genesis 45, we've been studying our way through the book of Genesis uh, started in Genesis chapter 1 over a year ago, have been working our way all the way through. That's kind of how we roll here. The Bible and the Word of God are a big deal to us, and so we treat them accordingly. And Genesis 45, where we start this morning, is right in the middle of a really long story that actually started back in Genesis chapter 37. Uh, Genesis 37 started with a family, 12 sons. Uh, it's crazy. And I would love to take all the time in the world and tell you how we got to this point, but I just don't have the time. So you're going to have to understand that we're jumping into the middle of something here. Um, 22 years ago, those 12 sons uh, were out together, actually 11 of them. The youngest son uh, ended up being the one of the favorites. He was too young to go out to the field. So we have 11 sons out in the field, uh, and they hated their father's favorite son. Uh, the father's favorite son, his name was Joseph. He was the favorite because he was the son of the favorite wife. Uh, the father actually had four wives, not four wives uh, in chronological order like we do today. Four wives at the same time, which made it kind of weird. And so they decided they were going to kill him. They ended up finding some uh, slave owners that were headed through the land. They said, you know what? Why kill him? We might as well just sell him and make some money. So they sold him 22 years ago into the land of Egypt. Over the last 22 years, that man, Joseph, has risen to second in command over the entire nation of Egypt and is now selling food to foreigners because there's been a crazy famine in the land. And so these 10 brothers have come down to Egypt in order to buy food. And lo and behold, who is there in charge of everything? Their brother Joseph. But they don't recognize him because he looks Egyptian, right? He's probably got whatever you know, doing this. That's what Egyptians do. I don't know what he looks like, but he doesn't look like Hebrew or like the Canaanites. And so anyway, uh, he recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And he's been, because they haven't recognized him, he's been sending them through these tests, like these tests to see where their hearts are at. Not necessarily tests to prove themselves, but tests to see if they've really changed. And so over the last few chapters we've been watching these tests and at the end of chapter 44 we saw the very last test we saw this very final thing that ended up changing how joseph was interacting with his brother so that's where we pick up starting in verse one it says this then joseph could not control himself before the, all those who stood by him he cried make everyone go out from me so no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. So he said that Joseph had been watching his brothers, right? He had been putting them through these tests, and he'd been watching them as they go through these little things that he had planned and seeing how they had reacted. And actually, they've been doing very well in the tests. 
The first thing that Joseph did was like, hey, bring your youngest brother back. I just want to make sure he's still alive. So they brought him back. So they, he was trying to see like, are they going to be mad? Are they going to be jealous? Are they going to treat him like they treated me? And so he invited him over to his house for a party. And he gave the youngest brother five times as much as he gave any of the other brothers. And they weren't jealous. They weren't angry. They did well. They didn't show any jealousy. And then he sent the brothers away and he hid his special cup in the sack of the youngest brother. So that when he sent his servants after him, the servant showed up and was like, Hey, you guys stole from this super high powerful leader in Egypt. What do you think you're going to get away with that? And they searched through their things and they found in the youngest brother's sack this stolen property. And so Joseph was watching. What are they going to do? They didn't blame it on him. They didn't say, hey, go back by yourself. You deserve what you get. Even though the servant said, only the guy who stole needs to be the servant of Egypt. They were united. And not only did they not turn on their brother in that moment, but they all came back to Egypt, which is what leads us to chapter 45. So they've been passing these tests. But whatever happened at the end of chapter 44 is kind of the breaking point. Okay, so whatever happened at the end of 44 is what changed from just, hey, we're going through tests to know their hearts are truly different. And now Joseph kind of explodes in this emotion. He says, get out of here. He tells all the servants to go and he reveals himself to his brothers. So what was it? What was it that moved Joseph's heart so deeply to actually change how he was interacting with his brothers? Let's look at it. It starts in verse 44, chapter 33. So it's the second to last verse of chapter 44. So we've been in chapter 45. If you just go up a little bit, he says this, and this is Judah speaking on behalf of the brothers. It says, now, therefore, please let your servant. Now that's just a fancy way of referring to yourself back in the day. So he's saying, please let me remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back to his brothers. So think about that. Judah stands there before Joseph. He doesn't know it's his brother. He says, Mr. Powerful Egyptian leader, sir, I'll stay. You let my brother go back. I'll stay here. I'll be a servant. I'll give my life. You let my brother go back. And Joseph hears this sentence and absolutely breaks him. Because now, specifically Judah, but the entirety of the brothers are showing that they are willing to self-sacrifice. And Joseph hears this, and now he sees that there's a different kind of relationship being described. When the love that they show for their brother will allow them to sacrifice of themselves for that brother, that's a different level of love. That's a different level of heart change when it actually costs you something. Now, the thing about this is we already all know this in our minds, right? We already know that if we give up something for another person, that is an extreme validation of or expression of our love for that person. We already know this. We're like hardwired, right? And, and what we've been seeing in the brothers here is just this emotional kind of love. Right? Like, oh yeah, like I feel bad for my dad. We feel bad for what happened to Joseph 22 years ago. But now it moves from this emotional to this action. 
it moves from like just thinking that, oh yeah, I should love this person to I'm actually giving up something for this person. And we are all hardwired to know that that is a different and much deeper expression of love. This is why husbands and wives pledge their lives to one another and parents sacrifice so much for their children and people give their lives for their faith and people risk their lives for the freedom that we have in this country. We all know this, but it's something very different to know it than to actually live it out. It's something very different to know that this is the kind of love that is the highest kind of love. And this is the kind of love that God has called us to express towards others. And then to live it out is something very, very difficult. I'll point out that it's a rare thing in this world to find people who actually think of other people when they act. That's a rare, a rare thing in this world to actually think about somebody else when you do something. And then it's an even rarer thing to find someone who will go without something in order to be a blessing to somebody else. Like, no, 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 I'm going to prefer somebody over me. And then the rarest of things, kind of the third level of the expression of love is to self-sacrifice or actually give something up and sacrifice of yourself to serve another person. Most people don't even make it to level one of thinking about another people. Hardly anybody makes it to level two where you'll go, oh, I will go without so they can have. And then almost nobody goes to actually sacrificing for another person. I'll give you an example. Um, my wife and I were driving through Montana a couple, maybe years ago. Dang. You ever do that when you start to tell a story and you're like, it was like two weeks ago. And then you're like, wait, one, two, crap, I'm old. So it was a long time ago and we were driving through Montana and uh, we had some friends that had told us their favorite restaurant in all the world was in Montana. So we pulled in, I looked it up on my phone, I found one, we pulled in and there's like 15 cars in the drive-through. It was like all the way out around the building, back out to the street. And I looked in the windows and there's like nobody inside. So I was like, I'm going to go inside. It'll be faster. We can use the bathroom. We're on a long road trip. We're driving to Colorado. So we stop at this place and I walk right up to the register. Nobody's in there. There's one other couple sitting down eating inside. And I order my food and the lady says, we'll have that right out. And I say, thank you. All right, so I'm standing there and she gives us our drinks like they do right after you order as you wait for your food. And so I go fill up my drinks and I take the drinks out to the car for the kids and my wife. And I'm standing there waiting for the food and I start to feel like it's been a while. And so I look up and I had noticed when we came in that the very last car in the drive through line was a gray Dodge Durango. And I do this thing in my mind to see like if I'm right, right? So like, I, I, okay, we would have been behind that car. So I'm inside and I'm kind of like watching, like, does that car make it faster than we would? And so I'm like, man, it's kind of been a while. And I look down and my drink is gone. And I don't, I don't drink soda that fast. So I was like, man, it must have been a while. And I look up and sure enough, the gray Dodge Durango is like one car from the drive-thru window. So I'm like, there's like 15 cars that have gone by and like, I still haven't got my food. So I walk up to the lady and very kindly I say to her, you know what? I've been waiting. I look at my watch like 20 minutes now. Like 20, and she goes, oh yeah. She yells back to the cook, hey, do we have the order number 63? And he looks at his screen up there. He's like, oh yeah, four orders before order number 63. And I was like, 
four orders. Like there's nobody in here. There's like me and those people sitting down and nobody's ordered to, I'm like, okay, whatever. I'm gonna be patient, right? And this is level number one, which I didn't pass, right? Like thinking of other people, like that lady's having a hard job. I'm sure nobody's happy for her. Like nobody's grateful. She's a fast food worker. Like not the most appreciated people on the planet. And so like, I wasn't even patient enough to just wait for my food. I was like already kind of complaining, but I was pretending like I was being nice about it. So then the, the gray car goes through and I'm like, wow, this has been a while. So then I look over and I watch as this maroon car pulls into the line, which is still out to the street works its way all the way, orders, comes all the way, gets their food, and leaves. And I look at my watch, it's, I've been over there a half an hour now for fast food. I'm not talking about like steaks or something, like these are sandwiches and fries. And so I go up to the lady and I go, okay, um, it's been over a half an hour now. And I actually just watched this person after I waited for 20 minutes for my food, come through the drive-through and get their food and leave already. So I don't, I don't know what's going on, but um, you know, I. Right? Because this is what we do. We don't want to actually prefer somebody else over ourselves. Like, how would they get their food before us? Every single person would say the same thing. I was here first. Right? That's our second level of love, to actually allow someone to go in front of you. And so, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. The lady turns around to the cook. She goes, order number 63. Is that one up yet? And he's like, no, it's not on my screen. And I was like, how did it go from being fourth on your screen to not on your screen? And so then I do one of these, right? And I'm just glaring back at the cook. Like nobody of you have ever done this because you're way more spiritual than I am. And I was, you know, doing my best impression of a godly human pastor guy. So I'm just like glaring back there. Like it's been a half an hour. My wife is texting me like, what's happening in there? She thinks it's my fault. Like somehow I just got the fries and I'm like sitting at a booth, like eating them while she's with screaming kids. And no, like I'm wait I'm just so furious. It's been so long. It takes forever. I'm just waiting, waiting, waiting. The lady has no one else in the store. So she's standing behind the counter, like trying not to make eye contact with me, like trying to find things to do. I'm standing like four feet away, definitely not social distance, like glaring into there, like just make my food, make my sandwich, hand me some fries, let me go. Finally, I get my food. It's been like 40 minutes standing there and we get in the car and we start to drive and just, I'm so angry. I'm just like so furious. And like, my wife says this, she goes, did you yell at that lady? She, how many of you, your wives know you really good? Did you yell at her? And I was like, uh, <laughs> I didn't say no, but I was just like, and she goes, so you blew your witness. And I was like, uh, right because we're driving the car with the big riverstone chapel sticker across the back and you know she's probably over in montana for school and so she probably lives like across the street and she's probably looking over right now and being like hey i think that's the car of the guy that yelled at me so you know my witness was not intact and i knew in fact i knew probably when i said it that i shouldn't be saying it I knew when I said it that I shouldn't be as impatient as I was and as grumpy and angry as I was. And I definitely knew the arm cross glaring at the cook thing was not a great witness, but I did it anyway. And then 45 minutes later, right? So, you know, you'd be super proud of your pastor. It only takes me 45 minutes of knowing the right thing to do to actually executing it. 45 minutes later, I looked up the phone number. I called the lady up. I was like, hey, you know what? I was just in there like 45 minutes ago 
and uh, I had a really bad attitude and I was really impatient and I'm sorry about that. And I bet you get a ton of people in there all day and they're all mad at you. And I just want to apologize and let you know I'm a Christian and that wasn't very honoring of Jesus of me and will you forgive me? And uh, I don't actually remember what she said. But that's the third level, right? I could have kept driving, right? I could have kept going. I could have gone all the way to Montana. I could have gone all the way to Colorado. Nobody would have known the difference. But for me to call and apologize was going to cost me something. Most, most painfully, it was going to cost me my pride. Most painfully, it was like not making eye contact with my wife who was sitting over there going, see, I told you so. You shouldn't yell at people when you're impatient. You know, it was that prideful thing that was going to cost me to actually admit that I was wrong and then go back and make it right and actually act on the thing that I knew what was right to do. And that's where, that's the third level. Nobody lives like that. Nobody lives as if sacrificing of themselves will actually be for the benefit and love of another. And, and some of you are thinking like, really, Jared? Like we're talking about self-sacrificial love and the example you pulled was fast food? Like you waiting for 40 minutes? Like there's starving kids all over this world that don't get enough food and you're mad because you waited 40 minutes. And here's why I intentionally used that example. We could go down the line and we could, we could name tons and tons and tons of great examples of people who gave way more and sacrificed way bigger and they gave their lives for freedom or they gave their lives for their brothers or their family. We could go straight to Jesus in the scriptures and be like, he laid down his life for your salvation. But what happens when we do that is we think that this lifestyle of self-sacrificial love is something that we, we only use very rarely. It's like we're just waiting for this big moment where we can jump in front of a bullet for our wife or our kids and then I'll be living self-sacrificially. When actually, you can be living self-sacrificially in the line at the fast food restaurant that you're going to go to after church. It's not this giant call to only sacrifice when your life is on the line. It's actually a biblical principle that we see over and over and over again repeated in the Bible that we do things for the benefit of others, even if it costs ourselves, which is why I'm teaching in a mask right now and about to hyperventilate. And the whole thing is that we don't just do it when it's a big moment, even though Judah is doing it in a pretty huge moment. Right? He's giving up his level of freedom for his brother. But we do it in all the small moments. It's all the small decisions where the Holy Spirit convicts your heart and you go, you know what? I can give of myself right now. I can sacrifice because I love this other person right now. And this pattern that we see in the Bible and that we will continue to see, like I said, over and over and over again, is that the highest calling of man is sacrificial love. The highest calling of humanity is sacrificial love. And Judah does it here. He sacrifices for his brother. And Joseph hears this and he knows their hearts have changed. And 22 years ago, they would never sacrifice for their favorite brother, right? 22 years ago, they're not giving up nothing for that guy. In fact, they tried to kill him. And now they are sacrificing of themselves. They're putting themselves in hard situations for their brother. And now Joseph hears this and it breaks his heart. It changes the, complete, the complexion of the situation completely. He sends all the people out of the room. And look at what happens in verse 3. 
And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. 22 years since they last saw him. Think about that. 22 years ago, they ruined his life, and now they realize he could probably kill him with a snap of his finger, and they are speechless and probably terrified. And look at verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And I'm about to whoop y'all's butt. No, that's not what he said. He said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life for the famine has been in the land these last two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest and God has sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors so it was not you who sent me here but God and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord over all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt now you read this, and you know the story, and you go, wait a second. Joseph's not mad at his brothers. He's not going to beat them all and throw them into prison and make them suffer. He's not going to yell at them or guilt trip them. Come on now, we're Christians. We've been guilt tripping people for uh, thousands of years. Like we know how to guilt trip people, not even a little bit, none of that. Where's the anger and the fury and the wrath and the revenge, Joseph? Well, there is none. And the reason is because Joseph thinks he's in Egypt because God sent him there. Did you see that in the passage? He says, God sent me here. All right, kids, where you at? Where's all the kids at? No, no kids. They, they checked out. They're like, Jared, do you expect us to pay 15 minutes of attention? No, it's been 20. I apologize. Okay, I'm going to give three points to end. Okay, three points, kids. If you can come tell me what my three points are at the end of the message over here at this black thing, if you put on some hand sanitizer, I will give you an otter pop. All right? Three points. Now, if you can't remember all three points, it's an open book test. You can ask your parents. So what this is going to do is 45 minutes from now, when we look around and we see kids with Otter Pops and without, we're going to be able to judge their parents for how well they pay attention. You don't listen to Bible studies because your kid has no Otter Pop. No, I'm just joking. Here we go. First off, Joseph seems to have forgiven his brothers. In fact, the entire sequence over the last year plus has brought his brothers back into his life. And we never see Joseph looking for revenge or punishment or sense any bitterness from him. And now in verse 5 of chapter 45, we know why. Because Joseph believes that God led him here and not his brothers. So in Joseph's mind, forgiveness is a Joseph and God issue, not a Joseph and his brothers issue. So here's the point. Forgiveness is based on the goodness of God. Do you see that? Forgiveness is based on the goodness of God. That's the first point. If you want to auto pop, write it down. Forgiveness is based on the goodness of God. It's not because his brothers deserve to be forgiven. It's not because his brothers earned forgiveness. It's not because what happened to him wasn't a big deal. It's because God is good and has brought Joseph through that he forgives his brothers. Now, some of you are sitting here and you've been through hard things in your life. People have wronged you. People have hurt you. People have disappointed you. People have done things to you that they never should have done. 
And when you realize that forgiveness is a you and God issue, it completely frees you up to then forgive. Because lots of times people don't want to forgive because it feels like that's letting the other person off the hook. It feels like an admission that what they did wasn't actually wrong or that they're okay or somehow that they did enough to prove that it was all right what they did to you. None of those things is true. Joseph forgives and his brothers have still never said sorry. Have you realized that? His brothers have never said, you know what? We shouldn't have done, we're really sorry. There's no apology in this passage. Joseph forgives based on the goodness of God, not on the sorrow of his brothers. So Joseph looks at this situation and he goes, you know what? I didn't like it. It hurt. They were completely wrong. They never should have done that. But as time goes on, the Holy Spirit starts to convict someone's heart. And it starts to become an issue of disobedience if you don't forgive. Not, not an issue of anger towards your brothers or right or wrong for what was done to you, but do you or do you not listen to the Holy Spirit when it convicts your heart? And God is now calling Joseph to forgive his brothers, and he does. And the reasoning has nothing to do with his brothers. It has everything to do with the goodness of God. And so Joseph can stand here and say, yeah, what you did was wrong. No, I don't know if you're sorry. No, it doesn't mean you're off the hook. No, it doesn't mean that somehow that wasn't a big deal. All of those things can be true. And I could still forgive you because of how good God is. That was big idea number one. Forgiveness is based on the good of God. And here's why I want to tell you that God is calling you to forgive this morning. And, and you need to know this because forgiveness is hard. I know forgiveness is hard. You know forgiveness is hard. But there is something that's harder. Forgiveness is costly, but bitterness is more costly. You get that? Forgiveness costs you something dear, but bitterness of your heart costs you something way more valuable. That's why God calls us to forgive. So that was big idea number one. Forgiveness is based on the goodness of God. Let's move on to number two. We see from the things that Joseph says that Joseph believes that God sent him to Egypt. Now, sending implies purpose, right? You don't send something with no purpose. How many of you put something in the mail before? How many of it was random? <laughs> Nobody knows. You send something because you want it to go somewhere. There's a purpose behind being sent. So that's idea number two. As Joseph believes God sent him here, God always has a purpose. That's big idea number two. God always has a purpose. And here's what I mean by the word purpose. Purpose means that there's something at stake. Now, lots of times people can't see past their own plans and own purposes. And if you were Joseph, the first part of the last 22 years, you would have been, what the heck is going on? It was a pretty difficult time for his life to see how God could have a purpose and plan in that hardship. But now... Now that Joseph sees that God has a purpose, now that Joseph sees that his family's lives are at stake, now that Joseph sees he can save his family, there's no room for bitterness. There's no room for unforgiveness. There's no room for petty grudges or harboring resentment. Joseph is like, hey, don't be mad at yourselves. Ain't nobody got time for that. We got people to save. Think about that. Not only is he not mad, he's telling his brothers not to be mad at themselves because of what's at stake because God always has a purpose. 
I read a book recently and the author was trying to figure out why the places people work are so terrible. And he's like, there's politics and, and people issues and like all of these things going on, nagging and division in, in these workplaces. And he was trying to find organizations that lacked politics and infighting and division. And he found the most likely organizations that don't have nagging and politics and, and fighting within them are first responders. EMTs and firefighters and those types of people. Why? Because the goal is so clear. Because these people are working in tragedy and hardship and difficulty. And everybody agrees this is what needs to happen. That fire needs to get put out. Or this is what needs to happen. These people's lives need to be saved. Or this car wreck needs to be cleaned up. And so there was this clear goal. Something was at stake. And they didn't have time for all the pettiness. They didn't have time for all the nonsense. And that's what we see going on in Joseph's life. He realizes that God has a clear purpose. And so he doesn't have time for the nonsense. And so if you go the other way, like the nonsense in your life might be an indicator that you don't have a purpose. The nonsense in your life, if you're just overwhelmed and everywhere and you're looking like none of this stuff matters. Maybe it's because you've never recognized that God has a purpose for your life. And this brings us to big idea number three. Here it is. God working evil for good is the normal Christian experience. Let me say that again, because it's long, but it's powerful. God working evil for good is the normal Christian experience. This is not an outlier. This is not the weird exception to the rule. This is not like, hey, where'd that come from? We're not, you know, the twilight zone here. This is how God works all the time, over and over and over again. I'll show you. How many of you have had something that when it happened, you're like, I don't know about this. And then you got a little further down your road and you're like, hey, actually that ended up being way better than anything I could have thought. How many of you have had that? Look around, look side to side. Don't just look at me. That's a lot of hands. Okay, keep your hands up if you've done that before, right? Some of you aren't putting your hands up, David. Oh. Okay, how many of you that's happened more than one time? How many of you that's happened more than 10 times? Look at that. Like this is not just something we read in the Bible. This is something that you and I and those around you have lived and experienced. God working evil for good is the normal Christian experience. So maybe you're going through something hard this morning. And God led you to this church where we just happened to read this passage about somebody who went something through something extremely difficult and came out the other side and was able to forgive and have peace and joy because of the goodness of God. And then I had everybody in this place raise their hand and you are in the midst of a bunch of people who know that this is true, that God works difficulty for good. That seems like a lot of effort that God put into encouraging some heart this morning. That seems like a lot of work that God put in to bringing you to this church with these people in this story at this time to let you know that the normal, the normal way that he works is to work difficulty for good. And at some point when you've lived this Christian life for a while, you start not only to understand that God works through difficulty, but to expect that God will work through difficulty. 
And that's when life gets really cool. When something hard happens, when your building gets shut down, you got to go to the park or when they keep upping the mandates and you got to change how you do church and you start to go, I wonder how God's going to do something really cool through this. I wonder how on the other side of this, we're going to look back and go, man, do you see how good God was? It didn't make sense to us at the time. It seemed hard at the time. It seemed really difficult at the time. But now God has done this incredible thing. And you start to be excited when you see difficulty and not frustrated. And next week, we're going to take a look at this process that God has led Joseph through. And then we're going to see the results, which is actually really unexpected for where they came from. But we're going to have to wait until chapter 45, the second half. So, Stephen, come on up. We're going to sing this last song. Let's go ahead and pray.